For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The Day of His Judgment, Part 1. This is Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19. So uh, welcome back to our ongoing coverage of the end of the age, as it were. Uh, the, our ongoing coverage of those events that, that mark uh, the end of this cycle of trumpets uh, and the end of this evil present, uh, present evil age and judgment. Now, after a brief literary interlude, after a brief pause, wherein the Apostle John is recommissioned as God's eschatological prophet, an interlude in which we see a picture of the persecuted church in her witness to the nations, the seventh angel now at the end of this cycle has sounded his trumpet. And in verse 15, at the sound of his trumpet, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the everlasting kingdom, the consummation of God's kingdom, inaugurated at the resurrection and then at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that kingdom has arrived at the time of its full consummation with the return of the Lord in his glory. His return at the end of the cycle is indicative, as we've discussed, of a recurring theme throughout redemptive history. And that recurring theme is this, God's glory in salvation through judgment. We talked about last, last time together. Uh, Jesus Christ is the one who returns in glory to save his people, ushering them into their eternal Sabbath rest to the praise of the glory of his grace. To them, uh, he returns in glory as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, great in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But also in the context of saving his people in mercy and grace, he is also the one who returns in glory to judge the wicked, consigning them to eternal torment with the devil and his angels, to the praise of the glory of his justice. To them, he is the one who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the sons and on the sons of sons on the third and on the fourth generations. Both the judgments that are poured out in righteousness upon the wicked and the eternal salvation of his people through the cross, both are coincident realities. Both, we see both throughout redemptive history. We see that theme running throughout redemptive history and both his grace, his mercy, and his judgments, his justice, both terminate upon his glory. Hence the recurring theme, God's glory in salvation through judgment. We see that theme exemplified at the end of the age in the words of Paul from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Since, Paul says, it is a righteous thing with God to, one, repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and two, to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, speaking of the end of the age, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from his, the glory of his power. When he comes in that day, second, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. In other words, God's glory and salvation through judgment, that recurring theme. The last week, 
we consider the proclamation of salvation, that proclamation of victory at the blast of the seventh trumpet. The kingdoms of our Lord are the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, right? At the blast of the seventh trumpet, the Lord returns with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 recounts, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And in Revelation 11, that sets off the worship of heaven, right? A, a worship service erupts in verse 16. The 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, they fell prostrate on their faces. They worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have reigned. As you can rem- uh, imagine, as you can imagine, that's not the only response that's given at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's another response, and that response from those whom the Lord will judge at his coming. As we have so far considered the Lord's glory and salvation, tonight we want to consider its counterpart, God's glory revealed in his righteous judgment. And we see that in the response of those he's come to judge in verse 18. The nations, they did not praise him. They did not worship him. They did not turn at his reproof. They did not turn in repentance. The nations, verse 18, were angry. Your wrath has come, the time of the dead that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great, and you should destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. The ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. There were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hell, hail. Great hell was coming. <laughs> Verse 18 is a description of final judgment. It's a description of final judgment. Notice in verse 18, notice in verse 18, it's a time for the dead to be judged. Okay, a time for the dead to be judged. And that final judgment has two components. One, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great. And two, you should destroy those who destroy the earth. That one singular judgment at the end of the age, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, has two components. The reward for the just judgment upon the wicked. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Now, the final judgment in that case, if you think about it in that context, the final judgment will involve every person who has ever lived. No one will be exempt from this judgment. Every person who has ever lived will be subject to the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some professing Christians are not accustomed to the thought that they will stand before the Lord in judgment. If you grew up in churches, many of those churches preaching and teaching um, that judgment is something for the wicked. Judgment is something consigned for the wicked. They think of judgment as an event that only the wicked, that only the unjust, only unbelievers will go through. But I want you to see that that is simply not the case. It is appointed for all men to die once, and after this comes judgment. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Turn back with me to 2 Corinthians. We were there this morning. 2 Corinthians, and this time turn to chapter 5. And look there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, and it's described as a tent because it's temporary, right? It's a temporary dwelling. This skene, if you will, we talked about this morning, this tent We know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building, not temporary, right? We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, we groan, 
earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. We look forward to our glorified bodies. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee of this future blessing. Now notice first, Paul, verses one through five there, is obviously speaking of believers. Those who have the spirit of God as a guarantee, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he's saying that this body in which we now live is a temporary tent, and that when we die, this earthly temporary tent is destroyed, we can be confident that we have a glorified body reserved for us in heaven by God. Now we know from other texts that we receive that glorified body um, we are glorified ourselves when Jesus Christ returns at the end of the age. That's where that when we have that glorified body. When believers die, they enter what theologians have called the intermediate state. It's uh, in the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 here, it's an unclothed state, if you will, until we receive glorified bodies when the, Jesus, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the end of the age. Until we are further clothed with our habitation, which is from on high, that glorified body that the Lord has prepared for us. So verse 6 then, Paul says, we are always confident then, confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. It would, we would like to be there. We'd, we'd like to be present with the Lord. We'd just as soon put off this earthly tent and take on that heavenly habitation. That would be better, we think, okay? Therefore, Verse nine, we make it our aim then, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. In other words, while we await that day, whether we are present with the Lord, having left this earthly tent, or whether we are absent from the Lord, now living in this earthly tent, our aim, either way, is to be well-pleasing to him. Well-pleasing meaning uh, walking worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Well-pleasing meaning obedient. Well-pleasing mean, uh, meaning uh, pursuing godliness. Uh, well-pleasing meaning faithful witnesses. We should be well-pleasing to him, whether absent or whether present. Why is that? Verse 10, because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. And notice second, notice second. Having begun by speaking of believers in particular, Paul now expands his concern to all men, not only believers, but all men. He includes not only believers, but all those who will face terror, he also includes those who will face terror at the final judgment. Knowing, Paul says, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men with the gospel, with the truth of God's word, with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because we must all appear, all of us, just and unjust, believer and unbeliever alike, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. If you think about that with me, your wife will be there. Your husband will be there your son, your daughter, they'll stand before the Lord alone without you there. Your family member will be there, your friend, 
will be there. A loved one will be there. Your neighbor will be there. All of us have that appointment. All will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the word there for judgment seat is the word bema. The word refers to a step of your foot. It can be used of, of any series of steps. In this case, it's a series of steps by which someone ascends to a raised platform to a seat of authority. That's what is referred to as the bema seat. It's a seat of authority at the top of a set of steps, if you will. In Matthew 27, Pilate sat upon the bema, the judgment seat, where he presumed to judge over Christ before his crucifixion. In Acts 25, Festus takes the seat at the bema to render a verdict with respect to Paul. Uh, these are presumptuous earthly judges. However, in the great day of judgment, it will be the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on the Bema seat, the Lord Jesus Christ who sits as judge. John chapter five, verse 22, the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son so that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now, that doesn't mean that the Father is excluded from judgment or that judgment doesn't come from God himself. Romans chapter two, verse 16, God is the one who judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Ultimately, it's God's judgment, that judgment of God executed through the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 17 says this, verse 30, truly these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he, God, will judge the world in righteousness by the man, Christ, whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So this is our divine appointment, our divine requirement. Chapter five, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Paul's ambition to live a life that was well-pleasing to the Lord was fueled, motivated, it was driven by the fact that he would one day stand before the Lord himself and give an account for what he has done in the body. Paul knew that that was going to be the case. He knew that he would stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat. And that fueled his motivation to live a life that was well-pleasing to him. The word for appear there is the Greek word phanareo. Uh, it carries the sense of not merely showing up, you're going to appear before the judge at court, but rather it, it carries the sense of being exposed there, being revealed. You're going to be exposed before the judgment seat of Christ, revealed before the judgment seat of Christ. First Corinthians chapter four, verse five, the Lord, when he comes, will bring uh, will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal, phanerao, the counsels of the hearts. The Lord is going to expose the counsels of the hearts. Verse uh, chapter uh, Hebrews chapter four, verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked. They're exposed, do you see? Revealed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So we often, there are many who think in this life they can put on a good performance, put on a good show, put on a good appearance. There are many who may play the part well, say the right things, do the right things. You may have all the best excuses, but that's not going to fly. That's not going to work at the judgment seat of Christ. The thoughts and intents of your heart will be laid bare. They will be fanerao. They will be exposed, revealed before him with whom you must give an account. Now notice further in verse 10 that this singular day of judgment involves both reward and punishment. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Revelation 11, 18 says it in this way. The nations were angry, your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, they should be judged. And in that judgment, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Okay, The judgment, seat of Christ, judgment involving reward for his saints and retribution uh, for the wicked. That singular day of final judgment at the return of Christ is a day in which all must appear before his judgment seat, and that day involves both reward and righteous retribution, both reward and punishment. The Lord himself describes that judgment in several places, but in particular, in the parable of the dragnet from Matthew 13. Listen to that parable from Matthew 13. The Lord says, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when that dragnet was full, they drew it to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and threw the bad away. So it will be, Jesus says, at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just. God will make a discrimination. He'll make a discriminating judgment. He will separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's what happens at the end of the age at this particular form of judgment. Dispensationalism would like to teach that there are multiple judgments, judgments of nations, judgments of individuals. There's a judgment of the unjust dead alone in Revelation 20. Simply not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches everywhere that there is a singular day of judgment at which... uh, upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, at which both the just and the unjust must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what they've done in the body, whether good or bad, and that those are, there's a discrimination made between them, rewards for the righteous, punishment or retribution for the wicked. So in Revelation eleven eighteen, this text is describing what occurs at the return of Jesus Christ. In the words of the prophet Joel, this is the great and awesome day of the Lord right? The great day of the Lord. A coming yet future day in which we have a requirement. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a coming day in which there will be both reward and retribution on that one day at that one event, both a reward for, an, uh, both a reward for God's people and an outpouring of God's righteous wrath. God's people are not going to face condemnation in that day. There's, there's not a reason for God's people to fear that day, but every reason for God's people to rejoice in that day. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's, not a, it's a day that we look forward to, a day that we anticipate. It's a day that we hasten, in the words of Peter. So in Revelation 11, verse 18, the nations, however, did not hasten this day. They were, verse 18, angry, and your wrath has come. Now the nations here often translated Gentiles, It's a word that refers to many people's ethnicities. We may think of them as all those who are outside the covenant love, outside the covenant promises, outside the covenant blessings that God has provided through the gospel of his son. It's those who are on the outside. This is the mass of unbelieving earth dwellers, right? The the nations here in verse 18 refer to the mass of unbelieving humanity that die without Christ and without hope. The day of his great wrath has come and they respond with anger. It's interesting, isn't it? The nations are enraged. That is ultimately their response. They are enraged. It explains the natural hostility of the nations against the preaching of the gospel. If you've been witnessing any length of time, uh, you've had a conversation or two or more where people have gotten angry with you 
I can remember uh, multiple of them where someone, uh, you, you know, you, you meet someone, they're very kind. Uh, Hi, oh, it's nice to meet you. How are you doing? Oh, doing great this evening. How are you? Right? Pleasantries are exchanged. And then you begin to preach the gospel. And uh, I've had a few of those turn south in a New York minute where it's like, uh, it's like, what in the world happened? There is a natural hostility on the part of the unjust, on the part of the wicked to the proclamation of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ said they hated him because he testified of them that his deeds, that their deeds were evil. And so with the proclamation of the gospel, there is this sense of judgment, this flash of judgment, if you will, that is brought to bear upon their consciences. And how do they, how do the wicked often respond? They often respond to that with hostility. It explains their natural hostility to Jesus Christ, their natural hostility to the gospel. That hostility is why in Revelation chapter 11 that they kill God's witnesses. They kill them. They leave their dead bodies in the street. They gloat over them, make merry, give gifts to one another. They don't allow their bodies to be buried. It's ultimately why they crucified Jesus Christ. Hostility, hostility. Psalm 2, listen to the psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, enraged, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. I'll not have that man to rule over me, right? Enraged that God, their creator, would presume to have some kind of authority over them or would hold them accountable for their actions, He who sits in the heavens, however, shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his his deep displeasure. And God says, verse six, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The nations are angry with God. They're angry with his authority over them. They'll do everything that they can to cast his authority far from them, even to the point of, pretending that it doesn't exist, but they know, right? Romans, Romans chapter one, they know, they know. I'll not have God to rule over me. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, right? So God meets them in their anger against God. God then, then meets them with an expression of his own anger. God meets them in judgment with a display of his own righteous wrath. This is called righteous retribution. It's called lex talionis. Uh, this is the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God against the, weak, the wicked. And God says, my king has been set upon my holy hill. You'll presume to be autonomous. You believe that you ro- rule your own life. You are the master of your fate. You're the captain of your own soul. That's what you think. I have set my king on my holy hill and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And he'll dash you to pieces. <laughs> That's an interesting parallel. There's an interesting parallel in the rebellious children of Israel uh, in Isaiah chapter eight. And it's interesting there in Isaiah chapter eight, the rebellious children of Israel were living under the certainty of divine judgment. The prophet Isaiah has pronounced judgment against Judah and they're living now under this impending judgment that is most certainly coming upon them. They're facing God's judgment at the hands of the Assyrians there. And just like um, those unbelieving rebels at the end of the age, they know that God's judgment is about to fall. They know 
the judgment is coming. They may mock the guy that stands on the corner with the sandwich board saying judgment is nigh or the judgment is coming or judgment is near. But they know that it is, that it is coming. Uh, and they fear, their fear is about to re- be realized. Hebrews 2 describes the lost as those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. They know that death is a picture of final judgment. The death is an indication that final judgment will follow. They know these things. And whether they admit them, they often do not admit them. Their consciences bear witness against them. They know that death is an indication of that and that their death is coming. And their death represents a bondage to them. It's a bondage to accountability for their sin. It's a bondage to the authority of God. It's a bondage to a coming impending judgment. You will be held accountable. That's the message to the wicked. They're not going to get away with their rebellion. So in Isaiah chapter 8, the children of Israel are living under this impending judgment of God. Verse 21, it says, they will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will repent, turn from their sin, trust God for his promise. No, (laughs) it will happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged. They will curse their king and curse their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness and gloom of anguish and they will be driven into darkness. They look upward and find no comfort there. When they look upward, they see God in judgment. They look to the earth and what they hope will comfort them there, there's nothing to comfort them there. All that they see there is um, judgment impending. These are those who are at enmity with God. Those who shut their eyes against the light of God's word will find themselves abandoned to darkness. And what is their response? They will be enraged, enraged. Many may pass through this life seemingly oblivious. They might even be shocked when you would say that those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ are God-haters, like the Bible describes them to be. Paul says that, doesn't he, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, they'll be lovers of themselves, they'll be haters of God, haters of God. That marks men who live in these perilous times. But they pass through this life seemingly oblivious. They are actively suppressing the truth of God in their unrighteousness, actively suppressing it. And even then, you'll see flashes of hostility when they're confronted by the judgments of God and they're confronted by the gospel. When their fabricated walls are torn down, when their suppression is no longer working. (laughs) John Owen said this, all mankind is condemned as soon as born. Life is a reprieve, a suspension of execution. And if during that time a pardon be not effectually sought out, the sentence will be executed according to the severity of justice. Under this law, men are born, this yoke they have pulled on themselves by their apostasy from God. There are indeed a thousand ways whereby this fear is for a season stifled in the minds of men. That fear is in their minds, and yet they suppress that truth of God's coming judgment in their unrighteousness. That fear is stifled in their minds. And there's a a thousand ways, Owen says, that they do this. Some live in brutish, willful ignorance, never receiving any full conviction of sin. They won't have it. They will never receive any full conviction of judgment or eternity. Others put off thoughts of their future state 
resolving to shut their eyes and rush into it when they can no longer avoid it. Some please themselves with vain hopes of deliverance, though they know not how nor why they should be partakers of it. That's a dangerous place to be in. And there are many, many, many who live today under that deception. They live, they please themselves, they placate a guilty conscience, they comfort themselves with vain hopes of deliverance. I walked that aisle and said that prayer. I know I'm going to heaven. I remember when God saved me. I just felt warm all over. I know he's my savior, even though they're, they're living in their sin, right? That was someone, something someone actually said to me once witnessing. <laughs> just felt a warm feeling come over their body. They knew that God had saved them. Vain hopes of deliverance. Though, Owen says, they know not how nor why they should be partakers of it. They've deceived themselves. And when you ask them how or why, where does their confidence come from? How or why do you imagine that you'll be a partaker of eternal life? They don't know how or why. <laughs> they can't explain it. They've deceived themselves with um, a sham, with a counterfeit. But, Owen says, let men forego these helpless shifts and suffer their innate light, their, in their innate understanding to be excited with means of conviction, and they will quickly find what a judgment is formed in their souls concerning death. They will soon conclude that it is the judgment of God that they who commit sin are worthy of death. God has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These are those, these are those who enter into judgment like that self-justifying lot in Matthew 7. The many who will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They were practicers of lawlessness. At the same time, they were professing to do works in his name. Do you see the hypocrisy involved in that? You see the inconsistency involved in that. They have built them up. They've pleased themselves, placated a guilty conscience with vain hopes of deliverance by their own works. And yet, they know not how nor why they should enter in. They are practicers of lawlessness. Paul says, this is 1 Timothy chapter 5, that some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment. In other words, they're aware of their sin. They understand their sin. They see their sin. They accept their sin. Their, their sins precede them all along the way to judgment. But he says, those sins of some men follow later. They are revealed, fanerao as the sinner is judged, as he is exposed before the judgment seat of Christ, revealed by the judgment. When Revelation chapter 11, in verse 18, fear gives way to anger. That fear of bondage, that fear of death that all men are subject to gives way to anger. Angry that their creator would presume to have such authority over them. Angry that their fabricated autonomy is being torn down, angry that their self-justifications are in vain, will all be in vain, angry that their worldly wisdom is seen as foolish. The nations, verse 18, were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged. I remember, I, I know I've told this story before, but I remember going out to uh, open air preach at Lake Eola and uh, it was during, it's just this example pops into my head, it was during the, the, um, the annual wine, wine and cheese festival out there. 
And the place was just overrun with people. It was just a huge crowd, just swarming Lake Eola. And there was this fence where you came in through this uh, fenced area, uh, and then you could go around and get into the park. And along the fences, about 20 yards or so inside the fence, were a row of porta potties. And just, there were thousands of people, thousands of people. So it looked like a pretty good spot to open air preach. So I uh, set up uh, on the other side of the fence, other side of the fence, um, and I began to open air preach. And uh, I just, at the first, I was just reading the Bible. I didn't even get into the sermon. I was just reading the text of scripture and I was reading uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter six. And so I thought that there might be a bit of a reaction when I got to the point of drunkenness and I was gonna explain that. Didn't even have time to get there. At the outset, at the outset of 1 Corinthians chapter six, um, people began to scream, like scream from across the, the little field there between us to tell me what for, get me to shut up. Uh, and there was a time period when I'm, I'm, I'm just reading, I heard these muffled sounds, like the muffled sounds, what sounded like banging. And I realized that there were people inside the porta potties yelling inside the porta potties and banging on the back wall of the porta potty. Angry. Just um, one of the, the more hostile responses that I've ever personally seen to the preaching of the gospel, just hostility, enraged. And that was before the sermon even started. It was at the reading, at the reading of scripture, that a messenger of the gospel, that, that God would presume to impose his word at that place and at that time. That's what their, that's their mindset, the way they were thinking. Um, they responded in anger. The nations are angry. Your wrath has come. There is in that, again, uh, a flash of judgment. People who have all their lifetimes um, strived to cast his cords far from them uh, are those now um, feeling as though the messenger is imposing his cords upon them. They respond in anger. The response of the unbelieving masses is anger, rage. The response of the Christian, in great contrast, is to always live a life that is well-pleasing to men, well-pleasing to God. That Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that his aim, whether absent, whether present or absent, is to always live a life well-pleasing to him. Why? Because he knows we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We are those, brothers and sisters, both small and great, verse 18, who fear his name, who fear his name. That's the response that God's people give, a response of holy, reverent fear of God, a healthy fear of God, love, adoration, worship, service. That's the response. We are those who fear his name, small and great. More on our response next week in part two, if the Lord allows. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the proclamation of your gospel. I thank you, Lord, that at the preaching of your word, at that point in time at which you effectually called us to yourself, you took out our stony heart of flesh. You stopped our mouths. You placed us under the condemnation of your law, you caused us to see the gravity of our sin and caused us to see the grace and mercy that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel. And you, Lord, caused us to turn from sin and repentance and to turn to Jesus Christ in faith and forgiven us of our sins and justified us 
and has seated us in heavenly places. Lord, we're grateful for your word, even though before we would have spurned it as all the others, even though with a stony heart still remaining in us, we would have derided it as all the others. But you, in tremendous grace, in tremendous mercy, uh, caused us to hear and to heed your word. Like Lydia, you open our hearts to hear and to perceive and to understand and apply those truths that were spoken of by the Apostle Paul and cause us, Lord, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We're grateful for this gift, Lord, and would pray, God, that you would cause your word to run swiftly and to be magnified. You would cause the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to go forth from this place in power, accomplishing the ends for which it goes out, and bringing in, ushering in, gathering together all of your saints at the preaching of your word. Uh, they might come into the kingdom and be worshipers of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would do that work during this time. Uh, if the Lord Jesus Christ tarries, make us faithful witnesses during this uh, time, faithful witnesses as lights that shine in a dark place, and may many uh, be converted to Christ. We love you. We thank you for the privilege of, privilege of entering into that work. Thank you, Lord, that we were beneficiaries of the work, like those four lepers who left to find, left the gates of Samaria to find treasure in the camp of the Syrians, Lord, and turned back to tell their countrymen, knowing that they weren't doing right by taking all that into themselves. Lord, let us be like those leprous men who were healed, those leprous men that found such great treasure, and let us turn back now gospel to this lost and dying that sinners might be saved Jesus Christ might receive before we're born of suffering God might be glorified we love you we thank you for this help us to live for you during this time come quickly we pray in Jesus name Hello and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.